wisdom as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you commit adultery but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who does not show mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, you have indeed brought us uh, up from a mighty long way. So we thank you and we praise you for the work that you have done and are doing in our midst, Lord, not just in our family, but in our individual lives. In our individual lives, you are doing a great work. Lord, we recognize that when we see you for who you are, we are forever changed by your love. So this morning, as we look into your word, I pray that you would help us to see clearly and not be fooled, and that we would be changed by your mercy, for your mercy triumphs over judgment. We pray this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, we've, uh, we've started this series in James. We just made it through chapter one. Today, we jump into chapter two. And in this book, we see that James is saying, hey, take your faith seriously. Take your faith seriously. And we live in a world where uh, Christianity or faith is often judged by externals, don't we? Yes, we do. Let me give you some examples if you don't believe me, all right? Here's one right here. This guy must be serious about his faith. He writes Bible verses on his basketball shoes, right? Maybe this guy, he's serious about his faith too, right? And if those don't get close to home or mean anything to you, maybe this one does, right? You post this on Instagram, you must be serious about your faith. You drink good coffee and you have a cool Bible, right? Well, this family is serious about their faith, have a Bible study in the park. No, listen, nothing wrong with that, but we often see that and we assume something. That must mean that they get it, right? This guy really gets it. Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy, right? Probably a seminary student, definitely serious about his faith, right? Definitely serious about his faith. We judge a lot by externals. None of these things are bad things. But oftentimes we look at these things and we're like, oh, that must be genuine faith. And it's, it's, it's not like that, really. And we see that in the scriptures. And Pastor James, 
uh, the author of this letter to these believers, in, uh, these Jewish believers, he's saying, hey, we got to get below the surface. We've got to get below the surface, and let's talk about what real faith actually looks like. It's a lot deeper than writing Bible verses on your shoes, all right? And we're like, all right, James, let's, let's, let's take a look. Let's do this, right? In chapter one, he, uh, he sort of jumps right in, he gets deep, and he does this, he uses this amazing analogy, and I wanna draw attention to it because we're gonna use this analogy all throughout the sermon this morning as we continue to dig in and sort of see what God wants from us and what he's desiring from us as evidence of genuine faith. And here's what we see. He says this, don't just listen to the word of God, you must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word of God and you don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the mirror, if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Who wants to receive more of God's blessing? Me. Should I ask again? Who wants to receive more of God's blessing? Me. I do. God has blessed me immensely in Christ Jesus, but he has more blessing because there are still parts of my soul that need to experience his love and his mercy. And he has written an amazing love letter to us to invite us to hold up a mirror of his his love, his glory, his image, and see how much he wants to bless us. And he does that here in this text. Pastor James, the author of this letter, is inviting us to hold up the mirror of God's word and stare carefully. Don't walk away from it, he says. Take it with you. Look carefully. And this morning, that's what I want us to do. I want us to open the scriptures. I want us to see exactly what God is saying. And he's very specific. This is not a general sermon. Very specific. James is, is hitting on something very, very, very precise. All right? And here's his point. That when we see the image and when we see the love and the glory of God, that we will recognize mercy always triumphs over judgment. As you hold on to the faith, he says, as you hold on to the perfect law of freedom, you don't walk away from it, then you'll experience this reality. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. Mercy, he says, can only flow from a relationship with God. Mercy only flows from our lives when we hold fast to the perfect law of freedom, which is God's love for us in Christ. He begins, he says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Don't leave it, don't walk away. Don't show favoritism as you hold to this faith. And you might have a relationship like this. He says this, right? And then he continues on, right? You don't just leave it at that. Uh, sometimes in our relationships, we uh, will bring something to a friend and we're like, it's kind of general, you know? Um, so you offended me yesterday, and you offend me when you talk to me like that, friend. When you talk to me like that, you offend me, and I don't like it. And uh, many times we'll say something like that, and then our spouse that we're you know we're talking to or our friend, they'll respond with this kind of phrase. They're like, you know, um, I hear you, uh, and I'm sorry, but can you give me an example? 
right? You ever heard that? Like, I hear you. Like, I kind of get it, but I need, can you give me an example? And it's almost like James, you know, is anticipating this. This wasn't a dialogue he was having. It wasn't a conversation. But it's almost like he's anticipating the church saying, all right, pastor, we hear you. We shouldn't show favoritism. We can't say, uh, we can't show favoritism and be Christians at the same time. But can you give us an example? And he's like, I'm glad you asked. Yes, I can. Here we go. And he goes right into it. And it's pretty clear. If someone comes in to your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? with evil thoughts. They needed an example, he gave them. And this is hard to swallow. You say to a person, sit over there, stand over there, away, sit on the floor. You're filthy, you're poor. mirror has exposed a serious problem. James holds up the mirror, and it's exposed a serious problem. super clear. No generalization here. He's not generalizing. Very specific. There's not really any room for ignorance, you would think. Right? Have you ever looked in a mirror and decided that you can't trust it? <laughs> oh, I see what you're doing there, but I think that you're wrong, mirror. <laughs> you ever done that? We do that in relationships sometimes. For instance, I do this in relationships sometimes with my wife and my kids. They hold up a mirror of relationship as a husband or as a father, and what do I do? I hear you, but I don't trust you. Uh, I think I'm right here. I think the mirror's messed up, right? And I think maybe that's what could be going on here. I don't really know, but James, it's almost like he has to keep going. It's almost like the example I gave wasn't quite enough. I wonder if they were kind of giving some excuses. I don't know if they were. I'm reading this kind of into the text. I understand. But let me give you some excuses that I could potentially hear them say when I read this. I mean, Brother James, Pastor James, listen. We love them. I think you know we love them. But they were really dirty. This week they were really filthy. So, and we have these uh, new chairs. And we have this really beautiful building. And God's called us to be good stewards. And we don't want to get you know, we gotta, like, so floor, like, Pastor James, at least we let him come inside. The church down the street doesn't even let him in the door. I mean, we're, we're not that bad. We could be worse. Or, well, James, you know that uh, we have a ministry on Monday nights that goes to the homeless shelter, and uh, our intention is to serve these people there. Uh, we really try to avoid distractions on the Lord's Day, and these folks are really distracting when they come in. They kind of sit on the front row and walk back and forth, in and out, all during the service. It's really distracting. So we just have to sit back here. James, uh, I hear you, uh, but I think you're kind of missing the point. Shouldn't the focus just be on the gospel? I mean, let's keep the main thing the main thing, James. 
Let's, talk, let's just talk about Jesus. Let's not talk about these poor people. <laughs> I think you're kind of getting distracted. And he says, no, 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 you're missing the point. Look in the mirror, look closer, look closer. You see, many times when we look in the mirror, when we look at God's word, when we, when we, when we actually look closely and it exposes us and it shows us the dark corners of our soul, it's really easy to drift away from honest vulnerability. It's really easy to drift away from actually letting the mirror say what it's trying to say. And sometimes, you know, we make excuses like this. Sometimes it's more like the excuse is just, oh, I, I didn't actually see it. It's sort of this sort of ignorance is bliss mentality that we can live with as Christians. If I don't know that it's actually happening, then I don't really have to work, worry about it. But, but what we're being confronted with here today is the fact that this sort of fooling ourselves, whether it's these excuses or this sort of ignorance, we're fooling ourselves. When, we, when this happens, it's very, very serious and deep implications. It opposes the gospel. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. This is exactly what James is exposing here. He says this in verse four. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is a big deal. There are real people that are really getting hurt and wounded by this favoritism in the church. Not to mention the Christians that are showing the favoritism are hurting themselves. So he holds up the mirror and he says, pay attention, pay attention. And friends, we need to remember that when we, when we think this way, when we sort of make these excuses or avoid what's actually showing us, showing in the mirror, we're fooling ourselves. And friends, being passive toward any sin when it's been exposed is in fact joining Satan in his very active opposition toward God. If we sit by and walk away from and, and just choose to walk away from the mirror, we are joining Satan in his opposition to the gospel. So pay attention, wake up, let's look at this, let's see it, let's let it sink in. Let's let it sink in. James goes on and he says, listen, let me, let me give you more, okay? Really kind of like a surgeon. He's like, if that, you know, let me go a little deeper. Maybe we didn't get it all out. Let's go a little deeper, even more. Listen, he said, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, he stays really relational. He's not just scolding them, yelling at them, saying, you mean, judgmental, discriminating people. Don't you know that Jesus died for your sins? After all he's done for you, how dare you not show mercy to these poor people? How could you? You really can't be trusted. That's not how James writes. No. He's, he's harsh. He's real. But he does it in love. And he's saying this, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. What James is pointing out is this. Favoritism ignores 
the glory of God. Favoritism ignores the image of God and the love of God. And he gives him more examples. You see, there is this special relationship that every human being has with God. It's different than all the rest of creation. We often refer to it as the image of God. Sometimes we hear someone use a Latin phrase, imago Dei, the image of God. And it's, it's special. Genesis 1, this is where we, we see this. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. In case you didn't know, humans are more important than animals. Another sermon for another I love animals. God created me. But I love humans more. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 31 says this, and then God looked at all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. The whole concept of the image of God, the Imago Dei, is the idea that men and women, human beings, have something within them that God put there. It's different than all the rest of creation, and that thing is that not that we are equal with God, but that every man and woman, every human being has the capacity to have fellowship and relationship with God. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. And I think James is getting at this here in the text because in verse 1 he says this, Do not show favoritism as you hold to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, you can't have faith in the Lord of glory and then not see the glory in other people. You can't say both for true. The word glory in the Bible doesn't just mean bright and beautiful, though it does. The word glory refers to importance, significance. What James is saying is, you, you can't show favoritism, favoritism as you hold on to the most significant relationship, the most significant relationship you could ever have. Your relationship, your trust, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it connects perfectly to favoritism and to this issue that James is exposing in church. He says, if you understand the glory of God, if you understand the glory of Jesus, you will not show favoritism because you know you know that God's economy is upside down from the world's economy. It's not the same. God's economy is a glory economy. It's not a dollars and cents economy. That's why he says, in God's economy, the rich are poor and the poor are rich. It's upside down. I asked my seven-year-old daughter, Caroline, to read the text and give Daddy three points that she would preach in a sermon if she was preaching a sermon on this text. Her first point was, the rich are poor and the poor are rich. I think she got it. I think she got it. The other two were awesome too, but I'll save those for another day. So James makes it really plain here. He says, if you dishonored the poor, You've dishonored the glory and the image of God. Genuine faith, he says, sees right past 
filthy clothes. It sees right past fine clothes, and it sees glory. Had a professor in college that said, genuine faith sees with inside eyes. It sees beyond the externals. It sees the image of God. If we don't see that every human being is, is infinitely valuable and, and of great dignity and worth, then we don't understand glory, and we are ignoring the image of God in Later on in chapter 3, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, James actually uses the phrase image of God as he's talking about the fact that you can't say you're a Christian and curse other people. He says, sometimes you use your tongue to praise the Lord our Father, and sometimes it curses those who've been made in the image of God. He's getting to the same point. Image of God means infinite power. So how do we miss it if it's so clear and so obvious? And if we can't be Christians without seeing God for who he is, then how do we keep missing it sometimes? How does this creep into church? How, how do we still have dark corners in our hearts that haven't been impacted by this and we still discriminate and we still push people away who are different than us or not like us or who we don't want to associate with? How does this happen? Three things I want to give you. Three things that I think we can, we can consider is how we miss the image of God in the face of others. The first one is this. The blinding effect of personal hatred. The blinding effect of self-hatred. Let me, let me explain. As a pastor, one of the things that I do occasionally is I help people deal with relational conflict. And it's amazing sometimes when you see what, when, when, when you're, what, what we say to other people is actually exposed, right? You wouldn't want us to know everything that you say to your wife or your husband, right? Or to your kids. Oh my goodness. Please don't record me, right? But sometimes that stuff gets exposed. And when it's exposed, what, what I see is that often the people that spew the worst kind of hate and meanness with their mouth, the people who, 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 who don't see the image of God in other people, they do it because they can't see the image of God in themselves. They don't, they've, never, they've never considered the fact that, that even in their brokenness, God actually loves them. And so they have to defend themselves. They have to build up these big walls. And they, have to, they have to overreact and exaggerate everything they say because they feel so insignificant and unloved and unworthy. And they, and they guard against it. So we, we don't see that in them because all we hear are these loud, right? And that's really distracting. It's really hard to see that an angry person is really afraid. It's really hard to see that a hateful person hates themselves. And that's sad. And that self-hatred, that personal hatred they have against them for themselves is because they have missed and not seen the beauty and the glory of God in themselves. That God created them and that they are of infinite worth and that he loves them. And all through the Psalms, we see that David sort of had a struggle. He, he struggled with his own emotional world. And we see all through the scriptures that he kind of wrestles and battles with God. Like, why don't you really love me? And then we come to Psalm 139, one of the most beautiful texts in the scriptures. And we read these words. And if you are dealing with this kind of self-talk, I want you to hear these words from God, your Father, who inspired the scripture. 
He inspired David to write these words for us so that we can pray them to him. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts of me, oh God. When we see the image of God in ourselves, when we understand that God actually loves us, that he created us, that he formed us, that he thought about us from before the world began, that he knit us together in our mother's womb, that his thoughts about us are so precious they outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. When we get that, then the image of God in other people starts to show up. So may God help us to see his image in us and may we not be blinded by self-hatred. The second thing is the blinding effect. We often miss the image of God in others. We don't see it and we ignore it because of the blinding effect of public opinion. Newsflash. We do not live in a society in which public opinion is based on the Bible. The image of God in every human being is not something that everyone out there in the world believes in, if you didn't know that. For years, for years, for centuries, philosophers and very, very smart people, smarter people than me, you would think that the image of God might be common sense. It's not. Very smart people try to disprove God's existence and disprove that human beings are created in his image. As far as public opinion goes, there isn't a God, or at least we can't ever know if there's actually a God. And as far as we know, we're all just here by accident. We weren't created, so there's no way that we could bear the image of God. But somehow, public opinion still wants universal human rights. There's still laws against discrimination and murder and rape. Why? The world doesn't want to believe that. And you know what? We Christians get sucked in. Romans 2. Don't be conformed to the behaviors and the patterns. Don't be conformed to the customs of the world. Don't be informed by and conformed to public opinion, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? We look in the mirror. We look in the mirror and we see that God created us in his image for his glory and that he loves us and that every human being is of an infinite value. So don't buy in to the pressures of the world. We can become so desensitized. It's so easy. It happens so quickly. Read the Bible and then you watch the news. My goodness. All right. Another way we miss the image of God is in the face. The other, another way that we miss the image of God in the face of others is this is the last one. The blinding effect of a puffed up ego. The blinding effect of a puffed up ego. My dad used to always use that term, puffed up, and I needed another P, so I went with it, right? You're acting puffed up, son, right? He used to say that. He meant I was being proud or arrogant, that I was looking to make more of myself than I ought. 
When our egos get the best of us, we do all sorts of dangerous and crazy things. We make really silly decisions. Let's look at what's happening to these Christians here in this text. Did, did you catch it? Did you see it? When we stop and we think about it, I mean, honestly, it seems, like, it seems a little delusional. They were showing favoritism and honor toward the very people that were oppressing them. James writes, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? These people were showing up with their baptisms, making fun of them and blaspheming God. Yet they were showing favoritism to them. Why would they do that? Because rich people make us feel better about ourselves, often. Famous people make us feel better about ourselves. Successful people make us feel better about ourselves. And when our ego gets the best of us, we start hanging out with people and we start showing favoritism to people and we really, we literally ignore the image of God that exists in all people because we're so wrapped up in our own ego. It's almost like they're in a trance. It wasn't just that they were missing the image of God. They were literally looking at these rich people with all their fancy clothes and their gold and their silver and literally treating them like gods. Because... Like I said, everyone knows it's good to have a rich friend. It makes you feel better about yourself. That poor person's not gonna help you much. In fact, they might drag you down. But friends, we're not in a dollars and cents economy. We are in a glory economy. We are in a relationship economy. We are in the image of God economy. Since Eden, we've been looking for a different kind of glory. That's what fooled Eve. That's what fooled Adam. Their egos. They wanted, they wanted to be like God. We can fool ourselves in the very same ways and attach ourselves to people that we think will benefit us. Attach ourselves to people that we think will get us where we want to go. As long as they serve our agenda, we'll do whatever we have to do to keep them around. Even if it means dishonoring the very image and glory of God. Sit over there, stinky guy. I need this guy's money and he'll leave if he smells you. Sit over there, sexually abused woman. You are way too needy and emotional and you're distracting our community group from digging deeper into the scriptures. Sit over there, overweight brother. I'm trying to get a date with this girl and she knows I'm related to you. Might not get the date. Sit over there, mentally ill sister. I really want these people to come back to church and I'm afraid that if they talk to you, they'll think we're all like you. Not only are we dehumanizing people when we do this, but we are completely fooling ourselves into thinking that money or relationships or theology or a successful church are gonna make us more loved by God. We couldn't be more wrong. We couldn't be more wrong. So friends, favoritism. Favoritism ignores the image of God and it ignores the very love of God. When we try to justify ourselves by all the good things that we do, we are ignoring the love of God. And that's exactly what James says here. And this is pretty clear. I don't need to unpack this too much for you. I think you're gonna get the point. He says this, as if they still didn't get it. Indeed, indeed. If you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. 
If you're keeping that command, he just kind of told them they weren't, okay? So he's kind of making a pretty clear point here. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin or are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Here's the point. When we, ignore, when we ignore the love of God, we break the law of God. And we've all done that. The point of this text, this point of these verses, is you're a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. We're all lawbreakers. And we all need someone to rescue us and defend us before the judge. And Jesus steps in and he says, I love him. And he says, I'm enough, and I can save them. I kept all the law. I love my neighbor, neighbor perfectly as myself. And I love them, and I want to rescue them, and I want to save them. And friends, we miss this simple love picture, this picture of love on the cross, that Jesus died to save us from the fact that we are lawbreakers. This is when favoritism and discrimination and hate shows up in our midst. If a man's on trial for murder and he stands up to defend himself by saying, hold on, hold on, judge, oh, oh, wait. I know, before you read the verdict, let me just say one thing. I know that it's pretty obvious I killed the guy. However, my wife is over here and I have never committed adultery. Uh, in fact, I have been faithful to her for 25 years. And I just want you to know that before you... Is he guiltless? No, he's still guilty. He broke the law, right? And the temptation for us when we look in the mirror is often to say, well, I mean, I, all right, look, I know there is this thing over here that you know, you're noticing and you're pointing out. However, look at all these things I've done. Look at what I've done. Friends, we're missing the love of God for us in Christ when we try to justify ourselves. You can't earn your way to heaven by being a really nice person. That opposes the gospel. And the truth is, many times our definition of being a nice person is pretty jacked up. So these last two verses pack a punch, all right? They pack a punch. When we see ourselves for who we are, who, who we really are, we look in the mirror, we see ourselves for who we really are, broken lawbreakers who are loved and forgiven, we are transformed, we are changed. We recognize that mercy triumphs over judgment. Transformation happens as mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy of God must be applied to our lives if we are going to show mercy to other people. We can't white-knuckle our way to mercy. We can't white-knuckle our way to impartiality or not showing favoritism or avoiding all discrimination. We must experience and receive the mercy of God and the love of God in Christ Jesus in order to be changed and transformed. 
It is only then that we can actively show God's mercy to other people. If we try to build a mercy ministry or a social justice ministry upon anything other than the gospel, it will fail. It will run out of steam. Willpower will never triumph over judgment. Feeling guilty and doing more will never triumph over judgment. Only mercy triumphs over judgment. It's only when we wake up to receiving the mercy and love of God for ourselves that we'll be able to show mercy to others. This is why we can sum up the whole law in one phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. We will never be woke to our neighbor if we aren't woke to God. Do you hear me? You can read all the social justice books and articles you want to, but if you aren't woke to the God of all creation who loves you and who has mercy for you and who cares for every corner of your soul and who's coming after you and saying, look in the mirror, I love you. Let me change you. Let me transform you. If we can't wake up and stay there, if we keep walking away from the mirror, we aren't going to show mercy at all. He isn't just commanding us to show mercy and to stop showing favoritism. He's saying, look at my image in the face of every human being. See my love in the face of Christ. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And he says, don't stop looking. Keep looking at the mirror. Look at Jesus. Look at what God did for you. Jesus' body was ripped to shreds, was torn from limb to limb. The sky went black. The earth quaked. Look at what he's done for you. And then look at yourself. And look at your neighbor. God, have mercy. If you are judging, if we are judging with any standard other than love, then clearly we're not looking at Jesus. The eternal creator of the universe is in love with you. And every single week, every week, we get the privilege Please don't take communion for granted. We do it every week. It can become sort of ritualistic. But let me tell you, it is intended to change the way that you think. It is intended to be a mirror for you to look at and see the glory and the image of God and be changed and become merciful yourself. Greater love has no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friend. When we see how he laid his life down for us, we have that kind of love and mercy for others. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus, again, he, he, he wanted to give us a picture. He wanted us to look in the mirror. He didn't want us to walk away unchanged. He said, hey, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember, remember that you need me, that you're dependent upon me, that you'll die without me. Every time you eat it, remember me. He took a cup of wine after supper and thanked God for it. He said, this cup is symbolic of the new covenant between you and God. I have come so that mercy can triumph over judgment. You are not judged by God anymore when you are in Christ. And this blood and this body that was given for you 
is the sign of that covenant. It's a symbol. So let's look at it this morning. Let's taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And let us go and let us show this kind of mercy and love and goodness to others. Our tradition here at Sojourn is to dip off, or to dip off, tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. The wine is marked with a piece of twine. There will be stations here in the front for those in the front half of the room. There are stations in the back for those in the back half of the room. There will be communion for you folks in the balcony. And there will also be communion over here to my left for those who need gluten-free. And I invite you to come and taste and see the Lord is good. See him for who he is and be changed and transformed. Let us pray.